0: Welcome to the Friday edition of Transformation Radio.
1: As we now turn our attention to the New Testament, we'll be reading from the book of Acts, chapter 27, verses 21 through 44. Paul's counsel gets rejected. I mean, what did a Jewish tent maker know about sailing a ship anyway? So the advice of the experts and the vote of the majority carried the day. When you are impatient and uncomfortable, and when the golden opportunity seems to come along, beware, a storm may be brewing. And they hear Paul's encouragement. Paul was right to say, I told you so, but he followed it with a word of promise from the Lord and a word of encouragement from his believing heart. At a time like that, people need promises, not preaching. And they were following Paul's example. Paul publicly gave thanks and directed their hearts to God, which encouraged everybody. The weary passengers needed strength for what lay ahead, and that meant taking time to eat. Paul was practical as well as very perceptive. Although Paul started the voyage as a prisoner and passenger, he ended it as the captain of the ship. The ship was lost. But by the grace of God, Paul's presence saved all the passengers. Can the Lord depend on you to sail by faith when you face the storms? Can others depend on you? And with that, let's begin our reading today in the New Testament. July 10th, the New Testament. Acts chapter 27, verses 21 through 44. No one had eaten for a long time. Finally, Paul called the crew together and said, "'Men, you should have listened to me in the first place, and not left Crete. "'You would have avoided all this damage and loss. "'But take courage, none of you will lose your lives, even though the ship will go down. "'For last night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me, "'and he said, "'Don't be afraid, Paul, for you will surely stand trial before Caesar.' What's more, God in His goodness has granted safety to everyone sailing with you. So take courage, for I believe God. It will be just as He said. But we will be shipwrecked on an island. About midnight, on the fourteenth night of the storm, as we were being driven across the Sea of Adria, the sailors sensed land was near. They dropped a weighted line and found that the water was one hundred twenty feet deep. But a little later they measured again and found it was only ninety feet deep. At this rate, they were afraid we would soon be driven against the rocks along the shore. So they threw out four anchors from the back of the ship and prayed for daylight. Then the sailors tried to abandon the ship. They lowered the lifeboat as though they were going to put out anchors from the front of the ship. But Paul said to the commanding officer and the soldiers, You will all die unless the sailors stay aboard. So the soldiers cut the ropes to the lifeboat and let it drift away. Just as day was dawning, Paul urged everyone to eat. You've been so worried that you haven't touched food for two weeks, he said. Please eat something now for your own good, for not a hair of your heads will perish. Then he took some bread, gave thanks to God before them all, and broke off a piece and ate it. Then everyone was encouraged and began to eat. "'all two hundred seventy-six of us who were on board. "'After eating, the crew lightened the ship further "'by throwing the cargo of wheat overboard. "'When morning dawned, they didn't recognize the coastline, "'but they saw a bay with a beach "'and wondered if they could get to shore "'by running the ship aground. "'So they cut off the anchors and left them in the sea. "'Then they lowered the rudders, "'raised the foresail, and headed toward shore.' but they hit a shoal and ran the ship aground too soon. The bow of the ship stuck fast, while the stern was repeatedly smashed by the force of the waves and began to break apart. The soldiers wanted to kill the prisoners to make sure they didn't swim ashore and escape. But the commanding officer wanted to spare Paul, so he didn't let them carry out their plan. Then he ordered all who could swim to jump overboard first and make for land. The others held on to planks or debris from the broken ship. So everyone escaped safely to shore. And now, a reading from the book of Psalms. Today, from Psalm chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. We'll discover that portions of this psalm are quoted in the New Testament and applied to Christ. Jesus became a man who was a little lower than the angels, and he will raise all who belong to him above the angels when he comes to reign over the new heavens and new earth. Jesus is the only man who perfectly reflects God's image. When we look at the vast expanse of creation, we wonder how God could be concerned for people who constantly disappoint him. Yet God created us only a little lower than the angels, and some translators even say a little lower than God. The next time you question your worth as a person or feel down about yourself, Remember that God considers you highly valuable. We have great worth because we bear the stamp of the Creator, we're made in His image. Plus, God gave mankind tremendous authority to be in charge of the whole earth. How do you treat God's creation? Use your resources wisely because God holds you accountable for your stewardship. And now from the book of Psalms. Psalm chapter eight verses one through nine, for the choir director, a psalm of David, to be accompanied by a stringed instrument. O Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth, your glory is higher than the heavens. You have taught children and infants to tell of your strength, silencing your enemies and all who oppose you. When I look at the night sky and see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you set in place. What are mere mortals that you should think about them, human beings that you should care for them? Yet you made them only a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them charge of everything you made, putting all things under their authority, the flocks and the herds and all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, And everything that swims the ocean currents. O Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. Proverbs 18, verses 23 and 24. The poor plead for mercy, the rich answer with insults. There are friends who destroy each other, but a real friend sticks closer than a brother.
2: May what I behold still my anxious heart Take what I have known and break it all apart
0: our last week in this series that we've been calling Practical Theology. And so if you've been around Veritas, we usually take time to go through a book of the Bible and we just just take it bit by bit. But um, for the last eight weeks, we've actually been going through more of a topical series, like I said, called Practical Theology, where we've been kind of taking um, kind of issues that we would consider to be, hey, what does the Bible say about this? And we've tried to attempt to answer them. And so today we're going to end with talking about the church as a whole. So I've titled this, The Beautiful Mess of Jesus' Earthly Church. And so what is the church? Is it important? What, what really, what's the church to look like? Why is the church important or not important? And so we're going to be um, discussing this this morning. But I want to just throw out some questions to you to get us to begin to think. I know, um, I know that this can be, I think, something that we overlook often. So, so true or false, local churches are the primary means by which God chooses to advance His gospel in the world? What would you say? True? Okay. True or false, the church is filled with, local churches are filled with Christians and non-Christians. True. What about true or false? We're all in different places in terms of faith, so the church will be a beautiful but a messy place. True. All right? And then a rhetorical question, is the church primarily for our entertainment as Christians and our comfort, or is it for some other purpose? Right? So I'm asking you these questions to get us just to begin to think, kind of to frame this in a way that we can begin to kind of understand um, what we believe about the church and maybe how we can think about it differently. But the first thing, and it's in your bulletin, I've kind of put a basic outline in there, is, is the local church... Something that is primary, or is it just a a peripheral thing? Is it an add-on to our faith, or is it something that's central, right? Is the local church something that is ultimately given by God as something that's important, as something that is, we need it to sustain us, to encourage us in our walk with God, or is it just kind of, I can take it, or I can leave it? Because I think what ends up happening what we've seen in our culture, especially for the past couple decades, is just this idea that I don't really know the importance of the church. Maybe I've been around it. Maybe it didn't make sense to me. I've seen a lot of weird things. Somebody hurt my feelings, et cetera, et cetera. I don't want to demean those. But a lot of us have come to this point where we've kind of looked at the local church and we've said, I don't understand it. I don't get it. Um, It doesn't relate to me or whatever reason or whatever thing that you can attach to that. And so we just say, you know what? I'm just going to, It's not really for me. And so today, my hope is that we can present um, kind of, again, we're not going to answer every question or address every issue, but to just kind of get a biblical understanding of what is the importance of the church and what's the church to look like. Because because without the local church, we we have to think about some issues. What does accountability look like outside of the local church? Because a lot of us might say we don't want to be involved or committed to a church, but if we are Christians, and I'm just talking to you Christians, if you bear the name of Christ, without being a part of a local church, when it comes to accountability or trying to pursue the ways of Christ, you're kind of left to your own devices. You're kind of left to to your own. You're on your own, right? Right? So, for you guys in the refuge, you've got some deep community. You've got some deep relationships and friendships and, and accountability. But once you leave, and for those of you that aren't in the refuge, right, w- without the church, you're kind of left to just figure it out on your own, interpret things on your own. And so, if, if the church was non essential to our walk with Christ, then we would all be left to kind of just make up our own morality or to look you know because i don't know about about you but um the church is called uh, the Bible has called church leaders to really invest lots of energy and time in prayer and studying the Word. And so for lay people, we might not, we might not have as much time to do that. And so, you know, meet, read my Bible a couple times a week or once a month or whatever. It's like, how are you going to really see life in light of Scripture if, that's, if you're not in the local church, you're not really pursuing Jesus? And so there's this issue of accountability. Secondly, there's kind of issues of doctrinal belief. When we think of doctrinal belief, all we're saying is doctrine is kind of the right way to think about something or the way you think about something. All of you believe in different doctrines meaning this is the way I should view, you know, sex or marriage or, or money or work, right? You believe certain things about that. Those are your doctrines. And so when we're talking about issues of doctrinal beliefs, we're saying, if we are to believe all of those things I just mentioned in light of what God has said about them, how would we do that outside of being committed to a local church? Of being Of hearing those and listening to those and and being challenged by what the Bible says about those, without the local church again we're kind of left just to kind of hear we hear certain people say things around us we we kind of hear our friend say things, you know you look at Facebook or read a blog and and that's kind of where your where your opinions will begin to be generated from instead of the Word of God or instead of um what what God has said through the word. And so there's issue of accountability, issue of, of doctrinal beliefs. And then there's this kind of cultural thing of, is my faith in Jesus an individual pursuit? Or is it something that is to be done corporately? So what does that mean? Does that mean, is my, is my faith walk? Is my, is my purpose in life, am I to do this alone? Or am I to do this committed and, and doing it with other people? This is where culture comes into play, because we live in an individualistic culture. So everybody will tell you, culture will tell you, um, do whatever you want to do. Do whatever feels good to you. But when you read the New Testament, right, we've been in Acts. And so even if you look back in like Acts 2, kind of a text that a lot of people will go to, what you'll see is that the church was hyper-committed to one another, they were hanging out together. They were sharing struggles with one another. They were praying for one another. They were confessing sin. You know, talking about, man, I'm struggling with this. I'm, I'm trying to live like Jesus called us to. There was a very corporate essence. And it was beautiful. And so, and so if we kind of embrace cultural Christianity in, our, in, our, in America, what can end up happening if we're not careful is we just kind of see our faith walk as something that I do alone. That I do alone. And to be honest, it's, that's not... Kind of our thesis today would be that real basic is that that's not biblical. That's not what we're called to. That's not what we're called to. So let's look at the text we're going to be in. We're going to kind of start on the back end of it. We're going to look at Ephesians 1. 15 through 23, but let's look at verses 22 and 23. It'll be on the screen. Paul's uh, talking to the Ephesian church and he says this, and he put, God, put all things under his feet, under Jesus, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all so kind of this big language, head over all things. What does that mean? That means that it's alluding to this person who's in charge. Who's, we talk about the kingdom of God. What we're saying is that there is a king and he's God and Jesus is the head. He's an he's authority. He's in dominion. He's over the church. And that the church is Jesus' body. It says, which is his body? So what we see, in, even in the Corinthians especially, is that the church is kind of talked about as being... It's correlated to a human body. And here we see that the congregation of believers, local churches, are Jesus' body. So what we see in that is this connotates importance. Right? If the local church is Jesus' body, then it's important because because you can't divorce Jesus from His church because the church is His body. The text says, The fullness of Him who fills all in all. What does that mean? That means we have to see the church as God's primary mission to accomplish what he wanted to do in the world. The ESV study Bible says the church is filled by Christ, or the church filled by Christ fills all creation as representatives of Christ. The church is the witness of the risen Jesus. And when we're saying the church in this sense, we're saying, because we call this, what do we call this? The gathering. We, we always say that. We say that intentionally because what we're doing right now is we're being the church. The church is a gathering of believers, a gathering of those that are of saints, sinners, and skeptics, right? We're gathering together. So the church is the witness of the risen Christ. It's the witness of the risen Christ. Some considerations I want us to just kind of take note of. Rachel Held Evans, who is a a millennial. um, A millennial is anyone who would be um, 18 to 34. And so she wrote this book called Searching for Sunday. And it's really, um, it's interesting because it's a response. There's a lot of stuff out there like this. And there's this kind of backlash with, um, and I'm a millennial, in, in the millennial age group. Everyone's freaking out about how to reach millennials because millennials don't go to church, um, statistically. And she's writing, and a lot of writers have kind of, there's this backlash against the church, um, really against, I think, what was happening and what we saw in kind of the, the 80s and the 90s and the seeker movement, which in the seeker movement, what folks thought was, let's kind of strip away the message a little bit. Let's, let's kind of take away the historical aspects of the church. Let's, let's kind of not talk about Scripture as much or make this too complicated. Let's just try to get some nice lights and some good music. And let's try to, through entertainment, make church something that will, will make people like, really excited to come, to try to convince them because it's cool or hip. And in an interview with Jonathan Merritt, Rachel Held Evans says, she says, we're millennials... We're not looking for a hipper Christianity. We're looking for a truer Christianity. The same Jesus who can be found in the places he's always been. In bread, in wine, in baptism, in the word, in suffering, in community. And among the least of these, no fog machines required. And again, she's kind of responding to this idea that we have to make Jesus cool so that people will accept him. And there's this backlash, especially in people around my age group, over these people that are just trying to make the church hip. What this has produced is this phenomenon of how to, how to be a Christian without going to church. And so you'll kind of hear about that. People will talk about that. But I don't think that's a faithful response. I definitely have issues with the seeker movement. I saw the fruit of that. I was a part of that in many ways. I got frustrated as a young Christian. But I don't think it's a faithful response to just abandon the church. And it's not a biblical response. Because if we don't have congregations of Christians, where is the visible representation of God's kingdom? And so what this would be is this is an example of us putting culture... Above the Bible, right? When we divorce the church from Jesus, what we're doing is we're letting culture supersede God's Word. And that's obviously not faithful. That's obviously not biblical. And so real briefly, let's talk about membership. Ricky Jones, a pastor in Oklahoma, he writes this. He says, when we hear the word membership, we immediately think of a club. A member pays dues, comes to meetings, and fulfills the obligations of a club member. When you move or no longer have time for the club, you simply withdraw your membership and move on. The Bible says membership is much more intimate. And he quotes from Ephesians 5. He says, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So we see that metaphor again. He says, to be a church member means we're a member of Christ's body, just like like your finger is a member of your body. His blood runs through us. His spirit animates us. His will moves us. He feels our pain. He cleanses us when we get dirty. He nourishes our wounds. He cherishes us with pride. Leaving the church is not simply leaving a club. When you walk away, you dismember yourself from the body. Jesus and the rest of the body sorely miss you and bleed after your departure. You cut yourself off from your only source of life and nourishment. Like an amputated hand, you will slowly bleed out, wither, and die. Very strong language, right? Very strong language. But obviously, um, it's just a strong response to to this idea that we can actually be a faithful Christian and not be committed to God's church and not be committed to God's church. So so one thing I want to do real briefly is is just speak about how the intentional neglect of formal church membership isn't biblical and it isn't healthy. It isn't biblical and it isn't healthy. Problem number one is that living this kind of Christianity isn't seen anywhere in Scripture. And so... We have to start with, do we believe that the Bible is the word of God? And so if you would say, yes, I believe the Bible is the word of God. Then, then if you say, well, if, you know, the church, I don't have to be committed to the church, um, but I believe the Bible is the word of God. Well, you can't believe those things. Because, because all throughout the New Testament, we see that there was a hyper-commitment to one another. And they were doing life together. They were serving one another. They were, they were, there was hyper-commitment. They loved one another. And it wasn't just based off affinity. It wasn't just, hey, this person's like me, so I'm going to serve him. It's no. Because of what Jesus has done, because of how he loved us, because of how he served and he gave of himself, we are to do the same. We are to do the same. The New Testament's littered with language, with relational language. It gives us this explicit description of Christians committing to one another. Problem two, desiring to practice faith apart from committed community, is dangerous. It's dangerous. Independence, the desire to choose for yourself what's right and wrong, is at the heart of sin. It's at the heart of sin. So, we see that this idea is unbiblical and un healthy. And so one thing, again, I would encourage you to do is to, is to mark, maybe to take a note of August 28th and August 29th, we have our foundations classes at the Short North, Short North Congregation, where you can learn more about what it means to be committed to um, Veritas as your local church. And if, if Veritas isn't a fit for you, that's fine. I would just encourage you to pursue membership somewhere. Let's look at one aspect of of the local church. And I would say um, one of the biggest aspects that a lot of churches, because of the seeker movement, have neglected is the sacraments. The sacraments. A sacrament just really means a thing mysterious or sacred. Theologian Greg Allison writes, According to the Reformers, Jesus Christ ordained two and only two sacraments. At his last supper with the disciples, he established the commemoration of the Lord's Supper. And in his great commission, he commanded the practice of baptism. So furthermore, these two sacraments have tangible signs associated with them. The bread and the cup of wine are the elements of the Lord's Supper, and water is the medium of baptism. And so every week, we, uh, we, we do Lord's Supper together, right? We, right in the center of our gathering. And the sacraments are central to our church because they point to our Savior, Baptism, in baptism what we're doing is we're outwardly identifying ourselves with Christ, right? With him dying for our sin, with him raising to life in, um, in Christ or in Jesus. And so we're identifying ourselves with Jesus, death and life, and we are identifying ourselves also with the church, right? Right? So in baptism, we're identifying ourselves with Jesus and with his church. In the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, we're identifying and remembering Jesus' sacrificial death for us on the cross. And so the bread represents his body broken. The wine represents, represents his blood that was shed for us. And really what I want to encourage you with is the sacraments remind us of just of, of space, of silence, of calm. I've heard it said a lot lately, just this idea of in our culture, there is no place for sacred space. In our noisy world, we don't appreciate kind of sacred, quiet spaces. And the sacraments are a time to repent and to reflect and to confess and to rejoice in the calm and the stillness and in the silence. We don't have to hype everything up all the time. There's nothing wrong with rejoicing, but we have to make time. In the sacraments, we make time for stillness and for quiet and for reflection. And these are to be done within the local church community. So sacraments and then uh, membership sacraments and then liturgy. Um, So we talk about liturgy sometimes and some of you are probably like, what in the world is liturgy? Liturgy, to talk about liturgy in its most basic sense is to talk about what the congregation is gathering to do. So what are we gathering to do? Sojourn Worship Arts Pastor Mike Cosper writes this. He says, The overarching movements of liturgy is a retelling of the story. Remembering that God is holy. Adoration. We are sinners. Confession and lament. Jesus saves us from our sins. Assurance, thanksgiving, petition, and instruction. And Jesus sends us on His mission. Charge and blessing. Whether you know it or not, um, every time we gather each week in the songs and in the, in the scripture we, readings that we say and in the passing of the peace and in the sermon and in the Lord's Supper and as we begin to sing and read text again and then ultimately the benediction, we are walking through, we are liturgically walking through all these different things. All these different things. Adoration, lament, confession, assurance and thanksgiving, petition, instruction, charge and blessing. Cosper goes on, he says, Taken together, these rhythms help the church pray and sing through a full range of human experience. The gathering isn't simply a single spiritual discipline. It's a host of them. It's a way of taking the experiences of prayer and worship, which we so often compartmentalize and individualize, and unifying them in the life of the congregation. They're word-centered habits, too. That's the Bible. It's easy, and frankly a good idea, to allow Scripture to be the primary thing spoken and read through the various prayers and songs in the service. As Paul says in Colossians 3.16 and Ephesians 5.18-20, as we sing, pray, read, and preach God's Word together, He dwells amongst us richly in the Spirit. The Spirit's work will enable us to carry all of these habits with us as we go. The way we adore, confess, and lament together will shape the way we adore, confess, and lament in our ordinary lives. When people spend months or years praying psalms of lament, they're better prepared to face the day that tragedy strikes as the Spirit of God brings these words and prayers to mind. When they learn every week the extent of grace and peace to friends and strangers in the gathering, it helps them to do so in the rest of life. As they face and voice their sinfulness and learn to express it together, they will more easily face and voice their sinfulness in their scattered lives. The gathering shapes our ordinary life. And ordinary life shapes our experience of the gathering. Our burdens and guilt, joys and celebrations inevitably come with us. We gather not to escape these burdens and joys, but to bring them to a place where we acknowledge what is most true, most real, and most valuable. There, in light of the gospel, all of these emotions and all of these circumstances of our lives are revealed in their proper place. And God speaks a word of peace over them. So we hold them up as we celebrate and thank God. We hold them up as we confess and lament. And in return, we hear the voice of God thundering from His Word and His Son pouring out grace upon grace as we remember, we recommit, and we are sent again into the world. So That is why we, it's a rhythm. It's week in and week out. I heard it said one time that our sanctification, which is just a big theological word for our growth in Christ... It's not a silver bullet. It doesn't happen in a moment. A lot of times we want to change in a second. We want things to be big and flashy and and, and, and awesome. And, And this thinker said, you know, change is more like a vine. You don't see it grow. But when you look back, you say, man, I'm a little more patient than I was. I'm a little, and I didn't yell at that person like I did. And and really, liturgy and the sacraments and and gathering on a weekly basis, what is it? It's this rhythm. Going to the Lord's table table week after week, it's this rhythm of, I want to be like you, Jesus. I confess, I'm growing, I'm maturing. And our growth is more, it happens that way. It happens that way. So I think for some of you, Don't despair if you're still a mess, because I am too. It's just continue to come and confess and repent and read the word over yourself and rejoice in God and, and, and go to the Lord's Supper. And just, it's a rhythm of doing that. And slowly but surely, you'll become more and more like Jesus. You'll become more and more like Jesus. So membership sacraments, liturgy, and then preaching and teaching um, the Word of God, what we're doing right now, Paul exhorts the churches. I mean, this is all throughout the New Testament, but an example is in First Timothy 4.13, which Paul says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. So, in the midst of all those other rhythms, we have to be, without being a part of a local church, we're not in this rhythm like we should be Of hearing the Bible taught. Challenging my heart over and over and over again to see God's word as superseding all the other voices in my life. All the other voices throughout my week, because you are being indoctrinated. You are being um, told how to view the world, whether you like it or not. Every time you have a conversation at work, every time you interact in some sort of conflict with someone, um, wherever you hang out, whatever you recreate, um, whenever you're on Facebook, again, when you're reading your blogs, like you are being indoctrinated. And if we are not hearing the word "taught if we are not reading the scriptures regularly it's going to be very difficult, if not impossible, that that we would have the Bible, God's Word, superseding all of the cultural narratives that we're told. Right? And so preaching and teaching of God's Word is something that takes place in the church, and it's rooted and centered on Father, Son, and Spirit. So last thoughts on this. Gavin Ortland writes, The church is the precious bride of Christ, whom He nourishes and sustains, for whom He shed His blood. The church is Christ's body in the world, through whom He is advancing His mission, despite satanic opposition. The church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth, and the arena in which God displays His wisdom to the angels. Indeed, so... Close is Christ's identification, which his church, which his church, that to persecute her is to persecute him. Anyone, therefore, who loves Christ must also love the church. And make no mistake, if we abandon the church, we are abandoning Jesus. So once again, reiterating what we've already been saying. So let's jump into our next big point, And that is a place for saints, sinners, and skeptics. The church is a place... For saints, sinners, and skeptics. On any given week, all three will be there. And when I say saints, I'm not talking about perfect people. I'm talking about people that have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. People that God has um, changed their heart, right? They're born again. Whatever language you would want to use. And then sinners and skeptics. But there's this issue, right, whenever all your friends are Christians. If you've been around the church, if you've grown up in the church, if if you've, you know, kind of been around this, what ends up happening inevitably, if we're not intentional, is all of our friends and everyone that we hang out with is a Christian. If this is the case, I would bet you that your, your Christian walk gets a little bit confusing, a little bit boring, a little bit where do I fit in? What am I supposed to be doing? Why? Because we're made for mission. And when, when all of our friends are Christians, we're not on mission. Because God's mission is to seek and save the lost. It's to love the unlovable. It's to serve those that are in need of help. And so when all the people that we interact with are Christians, it feels weird. We start to feel like we don't have, where where do I fit in? What am I supposed to do? Because we're made to give God glory, and God's mission is to seek and save the lost. So we're not engaging in that. Right? We're, we're, We're just kind of wandering. And then what ends up happening is the local church starts to look weird, Because we begin, whenever uh, sinners and skeptics show up, which we're sinners, but people that aren't Christians, when they show up, we, we feel weird. We don't want to engage with them. We don't want to love them. We don't want to serve them because it's uncomfortable for us because we're used to just hanging out with Christians. That's not a faithful church. And so what I'm telling you is that the local church is to embrace all people. The local church is to especially pursue the least of these the hurting, the weary. Um, I've probably said this before, but I was really intrigued. Tim Keller was talking about um, how Jonathan Edwards, who's probably the greatest preacher in American history, um, Jonathan Edwards um, said one time, with a pretty bold statement, he said, he believes that the greatest command that God ever gave us in the Bible is to serve the poor, is to serve the poor. If we're not If our heart isn't compassionate, if we're not really broken for those that are weary and those that are wounded and those that need help, if we just don't really care about those that are lost, we don't have the heart of Christ. We don't. I don't want you to despair in that. I struggle with that as well. Because our default mode is always selfishness. So I would just encourage you to repent, to confess, to ask the Lord to give you a compassionate heart, that our church would be a compassionate church right? That we would seek and serve those that are in need. Um, Embracing the messiness, Bonhoeffer said this, he said, those who love their dream of a Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community. Have you ever heard people that just complain about the church all the time and they're not doing anything? That's what Bonhoeffer's talking about. You can't complain about it if you're not actively engaging in it. It's not faithful to just turn and run and to abandon. It's faithful to say, yeah, we're a mess, but I'm going to walk in this. I'm going to embrace this. I am going to give of myself to Jesus' church. So he says they become the destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions might may be ever so honest or earnest or sacrificial. God hates this wishful dreaming because it makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. Those who dream of this idolized community demand that it be fulfilled by God, by others, and by themselves. They enter the community of Christians with their demands set up by their own law and judge one another and God accordingly. It is not we who build. Christ builds the church. Whoever is mindful to build the church is is surely well on the way to destroying it. For he will build a temple to idols without wishing or knowing it. We must confess he builds. We must proclaim... He builds. We must pray to Him, and He will build. We do not know His plan. We cannot see whether He is building or pulling down. It may be that the times which by human standards are the times of collapse are for Him the great times of construction. It may be that the times which from a human point are great times for the church are times when it's pulled down. It is a great comfort which Jesus gives to his church. You confess, preach, bear witness to me, and I alone will build where it pleases me. Do not meddle in what is not your providence. Do what is given to you and do it well, and you will have done enough. Live together in the forgiveness of your sins. Forgive each other every day from the bottom of your hearts. I love that. I love that. Bonhoeffer was a, was a preacher in Germany in the midst of, of the Nazi regime going around, and he was ultimately killed. And I just, if you ever want to read a good book, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Life Together, is a beautiful book. So that's a little side note for you. And just really, we want to embrace this in, in, our, in community groups, right? Because community groups are the best way to connect and engage. If you feel like you're left out, engage in community groups. And let me tell you this, they're not perfect and they're not clean, what does that mean? That means you're not going to like everybody. That means it's not going to be, uh, it's not going to just be everything that you want it to be. But I would just encourage you to get over yourself and to make time for it. There's, and I'll be honest, there's weeks where I don't, I'd rather hang out with my wife and our baby and not, not engage with other people, to be honest. But if we're all honest, that's all of us. And we have to, but other, I need other people and other people need me. You need other people and other people need you. My favorite quote by D.A. Carson says, what binds us together is not common education, not common race, not common income levels, not common politics, not common nationality, not common accents or common jobs or anything else of that sort. Christians come together because they've all been loved by Jesus himself. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake love that. You and I, none of us would probably ever hang out if it wasn't for Jesus. That's what the gospel does. That's what we're called into. That's what Jesus is beckoning us towards. Not our affinities, not, the, not our comfort, not all, the, not all this Americanized stuff. It's, no, we come to serve the risen Savior, to love the people that Jesus places before us. So the struggle is that oftentimes this kind of life is inconvenient. I don't like those people. They're not spiritual enough. They're too spiritual, right? And we, we go through all of these things. They're too young. They're too old. They're weird. They're whatever. Matt Chandler said, I know I'm reading a lot of quotes, but just, you know they're good. Matt Chandler said once, When a society gives itself over to entertainment, the only thing we cannot feel is quiet and awkward. So whenever we want comfort and, and to be entertained all the time and everything's got to be convenient for us and nice and pretty for us, the only thing we can't feel is quiet and awkward. We want everything to be nice for us. We want everything to be easy. We want everything to be comfortable. And when that's the case, when we give ourselves over to entertainment, we, the only thing we can't feel is quiet and awkward. And let's be honest, community with other people is awkward. Right? Am I the only one? Community with other people is awkward. But I want to encourage you to enter into the awkwardness. Jesus doesn't love you because you're cool. Right? He loved you despite your terribleness so that you could then love and embrace others. Speak that over yourself. Remind yourself of that. Be ever reminded that when we are drawing closer to God, we will be drawing closer to others. Sin isolates. Which, which path are you on? We will never reach and serve this part of the city well if we are expecting a clean, nice, entertaining, and convenient local church. We will not be faithful. This neighborhood is a mess. We're a mess. So if our church doesn't look a little messy, we're not doing our job. We're not doing our job. If, if we're just made up of clean, well-to-do people that are showing up here, that means we're not embracing our mission. Please don't forget how Jesus loved you when you were at your worst. What's your worst memory of yourself? What's the biggest thing you regret? Jesus pursued you then. Jesus pursued you then. The thoughts that you've had, the selfishness in your heart, God pursued you even then. Don't default into maintenance mode, right? We're at war until Jesus returns. We have a mission. We are called. That might sound radical. I don't care. It's what the Bible calls us to, to to radically love and embrace other people. Don't default into maintenance mode where you're just going through the motions, where this becomes a routine, where everything's just you're, you're pursuing your own comfort. I don't care how young or old you are. Don't quit. Pursue Christ. He will use you for His kingdom. You will find joy and vitality. You will find peace and hope. It's what we're made for. It's it's time to wake up and embrace the beautiful mess that is Jesus' earthly church. We're almost done. Last point, hope in the midst of heartache. Let's read verses 15 through 19. Paul says, For this reason, because I've heard your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, and I love this part, that you may know what is the hope to which He's called you, What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? In verse 19, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of his great might. Verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominions and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And so there's all this data about the church declining and this think tank Barna talks about how, you know, no one's going to church anymore. And and we've seen the SCOTUS ruling where there's redefinition of marriage. and, And it seems like in a lot of circles, Christians are freaking out and everything's gone, you know, to Hades and and no one knows what to do. And I would just encourage you that Jesus is building his church and that Jesus isn't freaking out and that everything's going to be okay. And the best thing we can probably do is just be faithful and to just hunker down and just move forward and to press on and not freak out and not despair. True Christians are looking more alien than ever. 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. What we're seeing happening is that cultural Christians are leaving. What does that mean? People that bear the name of Jesus but that aren't followers of Christ, they're leaving. So what this means is that the church is going to be more marginalized. We're going to be looking more alien than ever. But what's going to happen is we're going to become a more pure, more marginalized church. Um, not the majority people, and that's okay. What's going to happen? It's starting to look more like it did when the church began. We've enjoyed crazy good liberties and freedom for a long time, and maybe our time is coming when we have to, be suffer-, when we have to suffer and we have to be persecuted for the name of Jesus, just like the early Christians did. Let's pray that we remain faithful. Jesus will build His church He reminds us, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. God is sovereign, God is good. Listen, Christians, take heart. Take heart, Jesus wins. Jesus wins. It's going to be okay. So I would just encourage you to press in to the local church. To commit to a church. And if you call this home, to press in, to press in. Let's pray. God, thanks for your grace. You've loved us despite us. We, we just ask that you would cleanse us and forgive us and remind us of your goodness and remind us of your mercy and remind us, God, of how it's just so easy to default into, you know, I'm good and I'm just going to worry about me and my little kingdom, my little family, my little world, my little job, and, and, that, and just kind of coast. And God, you're calling us to press in. To unbelievers, you're calling us to press into our culture. You're calling us to press into our neighborhoods. You're calling us to be um, available. That means there's sacrifices to be made. That means we have to create margin in our lives for that. We can't just do what we want, Lord. We can't. We can't just take some and leave some. God, you're calling us to live in light of your Son. So I pray that you would just. Embolden us. Remind us. I pray that there'd be a new life. I pray that as the Christians in this room would, 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 ref, would just quit giving themselves to the passions of their flesh, to sexual sin, to just pride and self serving things, things that are robbing them of deep communion with you. That we would pursue you with our whole hearts.